This week on the show, we show you how to analyze BSD kernels for uninitialized memory disclosures using the Binary Ninja application. We also share a blog post with the FreeBSD Foundation called Sharing Dual License Drivers Between Linux and FreeBSD. We also tell you uh, Peter and Hans Dean's favorite things about the OpenBSD packet filter tools, how to trigger service restarts after OpenBSD updates, gems from the man page trenches, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 477, Uninitialized Memory Disclosures, recorded on the 12th of October, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I am Tom Jones. Yeah. I am back from the hackathon Tom held uh, for a small group in Aberdeen, Scotland. So uh, that was certainly cool. Thank you again for that. And uh, yeah, we might as well go into our headlines with start with come on one more time, Benedict, which start with like this. Mindshare analyzing BSD kernels for uninitialized memory disclosures using binary ninja. Oh, wow. A lot of things to dissect here. Oh, lots of words there. Yeah, so this is an article from um, ZDI or the Zero Day Initiative. Um, and it's been written by uh, Renaud Robert. Um, and they write, disclosure of uninitialized memory is one of the common problems faced on copying data across trust boundaries. This can happen between the hypervisor and guest OS, kernel and user space, or across the network. The most common bug noticed among these cases is where a structural union is allocated in memory and some of the fields or padding bytes are not initialized before being copied across the trust boundary. And the question is, is it possible to perform variant analysis of such bugs? The idea here is to perform a control flow, insensitive analysis to track all memory store operations statically. Any memory region never written to is identified as uninitialized when the data from it is copied across the trust boundary. Generalizing the code pattern for analysis, consider the case of CVE 2018-17-155, a FreeBSD kernel memory disclosure in the get context and swap context system calls due to the lack of structure initialization. Shown below is a patch for sysget context. The listing on the left shows, a pat uh, shows patched code. Sys swap context was patched in a similar, sys swap context was patched in a similar fashion. Um, they added a B0. The, <laughs> the vulnerability declared a U context structure on the stack, wrote to some but not all of the fields, and finally used copy out to copy UC copy size bytes of data from the structure to user land. The problem here is not all fields are initialized, so any data occupying the uninitialized parts of the structure region are disclosed. To solve the problem, the patch code zeroes out the entire structure using B0 function. The generalization of the above pattern looks like this. A memory region, so a structure or a union, is declared on the stack or allocated on the heap, which could be a source of an uninitialized memory. The memory region gets fully or partially written. There is an API that transfers data across trust boundaries. This could be the sync for uninitialized memory. 
The API generally takes at least three parameters, a source buffer, destination buffer, and size. In this case, the source of the memory is a stack offset, and the size of the transfer is a constant value. A constant size of transfer means the value is either the entire size of memory of the memory region using the size of operator, or a part of it until an offset. The memory region may be zeroed out before usage using functions like memset or b0. The sync function is application specific. To mention a few of the more likely syncs, copy to user in the case of the Linux kernel, or copy out in the case of BSD kernels, send or send to for network transfers or wrappers around them. The definition of these functions are either documented or else understood by reverse engineering if the target is closed source. Searching the code for analysis. Once a sync function and its definition are known, we can query for calls to the sync function with a constant size argument and source buffer pointing to a stack offset or heap memory. Querying for a pointer to stack memory is straightforward, whereas detecting heap pointers requires visiting the definition site of source variables. Consider definition of the copyout function in BSD. Uh, copyout takes a const void kernel address, a void user space address, and a size, length, uh, size t length. When looking for stack memory disclosures, search for cross-references to the copy-out function where the kernel address is pointing to a stack offset and the len parameter is a constant. Binary Ninja, um, I'm just going to add that Binary Ninja is a reverse engineering and static analysis tool for looking at code. Um, and it might be equivalent to Ghidra or the other one I can't remember the name of right now. Uh, Binary Ninja has a static data flow feature that propagates known values within a function, including stack frame offsets and type information. Using this feature, it is possible to narrow down calls to copy out that satisfy our search criteria. To understand this better, let's inspect the arguments passed to copy out from sysget context. Um, there's a screenshot of some code and then listings of stack frames. The kernel address parameter, or param0, holds a kernel stack pointer is shown as the stack frame of the offset um, minus hexadecimal 398. The value for the len parameter or params one is shown as the constant uh, hex 330. Since binary ninja has no information regarding the user address, this is known as undetermined. With this register type information for kernel address and len, the following query fetches all instances of copy out with a kernel stack pointer at a constant size. Statically tracking memory stores. The core idea of the analysis is to track all of the memory stores using Binary Ninja's static data flow capability and propagate pointers manually using single static assignment, SSA, from wherever necessary. For tracking state for stack memory stores in local function scope, we rely on low level IL because medium level IL abstracts stack accesses and might eliminate some of the, the memory stores. For tracking inter-procedure store operations where the address is passed to another function, we rely on medium-level uh, IL SSA form to propagate the pointers. The visitor class implement handles IL instructions is based on Josh Watson's email later. Tracking stack memory stores with LLIL in uh, low-level IL, any instruction writing to memory is represented by LLIL store operation. It has a source and destination parameter. The idea is to linearly visit each LLIL instruction in a function and check if it is an LLIL store operation having a stack frame offset as its destination. When a memory store writing to stack is identified, we will log the source offset of the write and its size. Consider a simple eight byte memory move operation and its corresponding LLIL information provided by Binary Ninja. The stack frame offset value is the offset from the base of the stack 
um, size of gives the store of the operation. Using this information, it's possible to know which memory addresses are being written. Um, and then this article is very in-depth and very long, and it explains how to use Binary Ninja to find these parts of the API and um, identify them inside BSD kernels. But it's quite in-depth, and so I'm going to go all the way to the conclusion. The scripts written were tested on Binary Ninja version 2.4.2846 against FreeBSD 11.4, NetBSD 9.2, and OpenBSD 6.9 kernels. Among the results, the code paths that are possibly reachable for an unprivileged user were evaluated. The OpenBSD bugs found in SysCTLs related to multicast routing in IPv4 as well as IPv6 and are tracked as um, ZDI bugs with links here. The four vulnerabilities uh, found in NetBSD are related to syscalls supporting backwards compatibility for older NetBSD releases. Uh, they have links to the bugs with more information. There are information disclosures in the VFS syscalls for NetBSD 3 and NetBSD 5, respectively. Details regarding the fixes can be found uh, linked. The next uh, bug is an information disclosure in get kernel kern kerny info syscall for NetBSD 4.3. This bug was fixed with many other potential issues as well. And the, the final bug uh, is another information disclosure related to VFS, but this time in the NetBSD 2.0 compatibility. The FreeBSD bug found in version 11.4 was also related to compatibility, which in this case was for supporting 32-bit binaries. However, this bug was fixed without a disclosure during a large change done for the 64-bit inode. The uninitialized structure fields were cleared in copy stat function as part of the 64-bit inode project. So this commit was in May 2017. It was tagged to release 12.0 and above. And the bug remained unfixed in FreeBSD 11.4 until it reached end of life in September 2021, just after their bug report. Putting it together, most of the bugs were found in BSD's compatibility layers. Additionally, all these bugs are stacked memory disclosures. And for anyone interested, they can find the code linked. Um, yeah, that's really cool. It's great to see you can analyze um, something as complicated as an operating system statically and discover bugs in, in such a complicated way. And there's probably enough information there that if you wanted to do the same sort of thing with Binary Ninja, you, you could. Um, but I've never used it, so it's totally beyond me. Yeah, and as Tom said, very detailed, a lot of graphs and uh, source code examples. So check out the full thing. Okay. Uh, next up, we stay a little bit more in the source land because we have an article from the FreeBSD Foundation blog sharing dual licensed drivers between Linux and FreeBSD. And they write, as a silicon vendor allowing device driver source code to be shared between Linux, FreeBSD, and other operating systems brings several benefits, including potentially increased market and additional collaboration effort, resulting in increased test coverage and bug fixes. Linux and FreeBSD are both open source Unix-like operating systems. Both have long development history and are maintained by sizable development teams consisting of professional, volunteer, academic, and hobbyist contributors. Both are capable of high performance and in demanding production applications. However, one area where they differ is the license. Linux is licensed under the GNU General Public License, GPL, while FreeBSD uses the permissive Berkeley Software Distribution BSD license. So that's a little bit of a blurb about the licenses and uh, companies that use this. So I guess we have heard this on this show and many, many other recordings like this. So I skip ahead a little bit. Wow. <laughs> licenses. You didn't. You certainly didn't hear this here first. Um, 
It is possible to share driver source code between multiple operating systems to reduce development costs. In order to do so, there are at least two aspects to consider. First, the license compatibility, and second, the architecture and interface compatibility. Okay, let's check the license compatibility. The Linux kernel, like many large projects, including FreeBSD, has a license on the software as a whole, but includes individual components or files under their own, possibly differing license. These files may carry only a permissive license, that is GPL compatible, or maybe explicitly dual license, allowing a recipient of the file to use it under their choice of license. The Software Freedom Law Center also published a set of guidelines on maintaining permissive license files in a GPL project that's linked from the article. When a file is used in a larger GPL work but intended to be shared with other non-GPL projects, they suggest a sub, uh, applying a permissive license only. Quote, if such a developer is using a license like the modified BSD license or the ISC license, where there is an established and widespread community understanding that the terms permit incorporation into larger programs covered by the GPL, the developer should simply use the permissive license without any further reference to the GPL, unquote. Okay, yeah, that sounds really legalese-like, but that's uh, the written word here. That said, the Software Freedom, uh, or the SFLC, uh, was that document was published in 2007, and there's now a broader understanding of dual licensing. The Linux kernel's license rules documentation, also linked there, has explicit discussion of dual licensing. Quote, individual files can be provided under a dual license, e.g. one of the compatible GPL variants and alternatives under permissive license like BSD, MIT, etc. Unquote. Okay. The ISP, oh no, ISP, ISC, ISC, BSD, and MIT licenses are largely functionally equivalent. Okay, so what about interface compatibility? The second issue with code reuse between operating systems relates to the interfaces provided by and or required by the code in question. This may be achieved in several ways. One is to implement core functionality in a reusable library and augment it with an operating system dependent layer. It may be that the core library can be shared between Linux, Windows, and FreeBSD, providing for significant reuse. For the specific case of code sharing with FreeBSD, another option is the use of the Linux KPI layer. This interface layer provides API-compatible implementations of many Linux kernel interfaces, greatly simplifying the adaptation of Linux drivers uh, or drive driver sources to FreeBSD. A third option is to provide permissively licensed or dual licensed codes or source, but forego interface compatibility altogether. In the future, an interested party can use that source as a starting point for a ported driver. And they list a couple of code sharing examples between Linux and FreeBSD that have already happened. First one is the Intel i915 graphics driver, which a lot of people are happy about because, well, that makes their <laughs> GPU work on the FreeBSD as well and have the nice uh, graphics under X11 or even Wayland. Uh, then they list the Intel IWL wireless driver. Uh, they note that the FreeBSD Foundation recently funded Bjorn Zeep to port IWL Wi-Fi to FreeBSD using the Linux KPI layer. The source is dual licensed in the Linux tree, and we have submitted some small fixes found during the porting effort. So that is also beneficial to the Linux folks. Then there's the NXP SJA1105 driver, uh, which is a five-port layer two switch driver. It's not yet ported to FreeBSD, but it is an example of the BSD license used without dual licensing. Ah, I see. And then they have the MicroSemi VSC85XX Phys, or the physical 
uh, interfaces here. Not yet ported to FreeBSD, they note an example of a dual license GPL and BSD file from another organization, in this case, Microchip. And each of those are linked to their respective GitHub sources. They conclude with creating dual license drivers provides silicon vendors with a long list of benefits. These efforts can reduce development costs and increase collaboration between operating system developers, leading to the possibility of greater share of the market, higher test coverage, or increased bug fixes, making it a win-win for everyone involved. Yeah, the foundation is uh, often involved in handling or uh, negotiating these uh, NDAs so that people can also write um, proprietary drivers, but we're actually aiming for open drivers and sharing of uh, drivers as much as possible. Okay, so BSD Now is a news podcast, and now it's time for the news roundup. First up in the news, we have something a little different from someone who's been on the show many, many times before. Um, and we have um, lecture notes from a set of slides from a semi-bug talk by our, our friend Peter N.M. Hanstein. Uh, and Peter wrote about um, a few of my favorite things about the OpenBSD packet filter tools. And there's a disclaimer at the top that these are available as slides, but I'm just going to dive right in. At the time the OpenBSD project introduced its new packet filter subsystem in 2001, I was nowhere near the essentially full-time OpenBSD user I would soon become. I did, however, quickly recognize that, that even what was later dubbed the working prototype was reported to perform better in most contexts than the code it replaced. The reason PS predecessor needed to be replaced has been covered extensively by myself and others elsewhere. So I'll limit myself to noting that the reason was that several somebodies finally read and understood the code's license, uh, back to licensing, and decided that it was not in fact open source in any acceptable means terms, any acceptable meaning of the term. The initial PF release was very close in features and syntax that the code it replaced. And even at that time, the config syntax was a lot more human readable than the alternative I'd been handling up to then, which was Linux IP tables. And the less said about IP tables, the better. But soon visible improvements in user friendliness and at least admin friendliness started turning up with OpenBSD 3.2, the separate slash etc nat.conf. Network address translation configuration file was moved to the attic and nat redirection options were moved into the main PF config file. The next version, uh, OpenBSD 3.3, saw the alt-q queuing configuration moving to pf.conf as well. And the previously separate alt-q.conf file became obsolete. What did not change, however, was the syntax, which was to remain just bothersome enough that many of us put off playing with traffic shipping until some years later. Other PS news in that release included anchors, or named sub-rule sets, as well as tables described as a very efficient way for a large addressed list in, or in rules, and the initial release of spamd. More on all of these things later. I will not bore you with the detail with a detailed history of PF features introduced or changed in OpenBSD over the last 20 years. PF, the basics. So how do we go right about writing the perfect firewall config? I could go on about that at length, and I've been known to on occasion. But let's start with the simplest possible yet absolutely secure PF rule set. Block. With that in place, you're totally secure. No traffic will pass. Or as they say in the trade, you have virtually unplugged yourself from the rest of the world. By way of getting ahead of ourselves, that particular rule set will be expanded to the following. Block, drop, all. But we are ahead of ourselves. To provide with you with a few tools and some context, these are the basic building blocks of a PF rule. 
verb, criteria, action, options. Here are a few sample rules to put it into context, all lifted from configurations I've put into production. Pass in on egress proto TCP to egress port SSH. The first sample says that if a packet arrives on the egress, an interface belonging to a group of interfaces that has a default route, and that packet is a TCP packet with the destination service SSH, let the packet pass to the interfaces belonging to the egress interface group. Yes, when you write PF rules, you don't necessarily need to write port numbers for services and memorize what services hide behind, say, port 80 or 53 or 443. The common standard services are known to the rules parsing part of PF control. Generally, with service names, you can look up in the ETC services file. The interface group concept is, as far as I know, an open BSD innovation. You can put interfaces into logical groups and reference the group name in PF configuration. A few default groups exist without you needing to do anything. Egress is one. Another common one is WLAN, where all configured Wi-Fi interface are members by default. Keep in mind you can create your own interface groups, set them up using ifconfig, and refer to them in your rules. Match out on egress, NAT2 egress. This one matches outbound traffic again on egress, which is the simpler case consists of one interface, and applies the NAT2 action on the packet, transforming them so that the next hops all the way to a destination will see packets where the source address is equal to egress's interface address. If your network runs IPv4, and you only have one routable address assigned, you will more than likely have something like this configured for your internet-facing gateway. It is worth noting that early PF versions did not have the verb match. After a few years of PF practice, developers and practitioners alike saw the need for a way to apply actions such as NAT2 or other transformations without making a decision on whether to pass or block for traffic. The match keyword arrived in OpenBSD 4.6, and in retrospect, seems like a prelude to more extensive changes that followed over the next years. Next up is a variation on an initially absolutely secure rule set, block all. I will tell you now, so you will not be surprised later. If you had made a configuration with those three rules in that order, your configuration would be functionally the same as the one word rule we started with. This is because in PF configurations, rules are evaluated from top to bottom and the last matching rule wins. The only escape from this progression is to insert a quick modifier after the verb, as in pass quick from self, which will stop evaluation when the packet matches the criteria in the quick rule. Please use sparingly, if at all. There's a specific reason why PF behaves like this. The system that PF replaced in OpenBSD had the top to bottom last match wins logic, and the developers did not want to break existing configurations too badly during the transition away from the old system. So in practice, you would put them in this order for a more functional setup. Block all. Pass out on egress, NAT to egress. Pass in on egress, proto TCP to egress port SSH. But likely supplemented by a few other items. For those supplementing items, we can take a look at some of the PF features that can help you write readable and maintainable rule sets. And while a readable rule set is not automatically a more secure one, readability certainly helps you spot errors in your logic that could put the system and your users in your care in reach of potential threats. To help that readability, it's important to be aware of these features. Options. General configuration options that set parameters for a rule set, such as set limit states 100,000, set debug debug, set logic interface DC0, set timeout tcp.first120, set timeout tcp.established 86400, set timeout brackets adaptive.start 6000, adaptive.end 12000. If the meaning of some of these do not seem terribly obvious to you at this point, that's fine. 
They're all extensively documented in the PF man page. Macros. Uh, content that will expand in place, such as lists of services, interface names, or other items you feel useful. Some examples uh, al along with these are uh, ext if equals kue0, all ifs equals um, ext if lo0, pass out on ext if from any to any, pass in on ext if proto tcp from any to any port 25. Keep in mind that your macros expand to lists of either ports or IP addresses, the macro expansion will create several rules to cover your definitions in the rule set that is eventually loaded. Tables, data structures that are specifically designed to store IP addresses and networks. Originally devised to be a more efficient way to store IP addresses than macros that contained IP addresses and expanded in several rules that needed to be evaluated separately. Rules can refer to tables so the rule will match any member of the table. Uh, table bad hosts, persist counters file, um, home Peter bad hosts. Block from bad hosts. Here the table is loaded from a file. You can also initialize a table in pf.conf itself, and you can even manipulate table contents from the command line without reloading the rules. Rules, the rules with the verbs, criteria, and actions that determine how your system handles network traffic. A very simple and reasonable baseline is one that blocks all incoming traffic, but allows, but allows all traffic initiated on the local system. Block, pass from self. The pass rule lets our traffic pass to elsewhere, and since PF is a stateful firewall by default, return traffic for connections the local system sends out will be allowed back. You probably notice the configuration here referenced something called self. The string self is a default macro that expands to all configured local interfaces on the host. Here self is set inside parentheses, which indicates one or more of the interfaces in self may have dynamically allocated addresses and that PF will detect changes in these addresses. And Peter continues with this article and he goes into um, Alt-Q um, for traffic shaping and how it evolved. Uh, and he talks about um, adaptive firewalls and gray trapping and playing games with, with other people. Uh, and it's a great read and it is written really well. Um, and I'll just read his last part. Who else uses PF today? PF originated in OpenBSD, but the word of the new subsystem reached other projects quickly and there was considerable interest from the very start. Over the years, PF has been ported from the original OpenBSD to the other BSDs and a few other systems, including FreeBSD, NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD, Apple's macOS and iOS uh, via FreeBSD, BlackBerry via NetBSD, Oracle in Solaris 11.3 is one of two options, from Solaris 12, the only packet filter replacing IPF, um, and see this blog post by yours truly. I don't know what that is. Um, other than Oracle with their port to Solaris, most ports of the PF subsystem happened before the OpenBSD 4.7 NAT rewrite. And for that reason, they've kept the previous syntax intact. There may well be, there may very well be others, but there is no duty to actually advertise the fact you've incorporated BSD license code in your product. If you find other people using PF or OpenBSD code in the wild, Peter would love to hear about it. Thanks, Peter. That was a great article. Oh yeah, indeed. And we stay a little bit longer with OpenBSD because Celine has been blogging about how to trigger a service restart after OpenBSD update. So she introduces this with keeping an OpenBSD system up to date requires two daily operations, updating the base system with the command user sbin patch and updating the packages, if any, with the command user sbin package underscore add dash u, lowercase u that is. However, OpenBSD isn't very friendly with regard to what to do after upgrading. Modified binaries should be restarted to use the new code and a new kernel requires an upgrade. It's not useful to update if the newer binaries are never used. Right. 
So she goes syspatch reboot. I wrote a small script to automatically reboot if syspatch deployed a new kernel. Instead of running syspatch from a cron job, you can run a script with the contents. So she has a short script here that basically checks if uh, previous command, uh, the syspatch one uh, exited successfully. And if that is correct, or is that the case, then she, uh, oh, if echo dollar out pipe grab reboot to def null. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's not much she writes. It runs syspatch and if the output contains reboot, like please reboot to make this patch uh, or apply this patch, then a reboot of the system is done. So yeah, that's quick and dirty, but does its job. Uh, binaries restart. It's getting more complicated when a running program is updated, whether it's a service with an RCD script or a program currently in use. This would be nice to see if something to help to restart them appropriately. Uh, she currently uses the program check restart in the script like the following. So she does check restart pipe grab smtpd and and rcctl restart smtpd and the same for httpd dovcot and lua. Uh, in the last letter case with lua she does rctl restart prosody. Or prosody? Prosody? Hmm. Uh, anyway, this works well for system services except when the binary is different from the service name like for prosody in this case. Uh, there you must use the exact name of the binary. But for long-lived commands like 24-7 Emacs or an IRC client, there isn't any mechanism to handle this. At best, you can email your check restart output or run check restart upon SSH login. Well, why not? That's a good uh, way to have at least a basic way of always be on the updated side of things. Cool. Next up and last in the news, we have an article from Salmonier at salmonier.com. Uh, and they write gems from the man page trenches. I'm a big fan of, man, of Unix man pages. They are almost without exception, well-written and concise. And the intuition you gain for particular topics as you browse through the man page is well worth the effort. In contrast, many developers shoot straight to Googling for answers at hand. Argue this is counterintuitive. Uh, one ends up with poor quality stack overflow answers and the intended use of applications is off and left as a mystery to the developer. Even the I don't have time for reading man pages uh, argument does not hold. Since there's a learning curve involved navigating man pages, the more you do it, the better you become. Anyway, this post is about funny bits I found in man pages. And without further ado, here's some of them in no particular order. Uh, GNU PG has dash dash gen dash prime mode bits. Use the source loop. The output format is still subject to change. Uh, Crontab has run at 10 p.m. on weekdays, annoy Joe. Um, nail dash s it's 10 p.m joe where are your kids uh, <laughs> xxd has warning the tool's weirdness matches its creator's brain use entirely at your own risk copy files trace it become a wizard this one is lengthier but underlies the pragmatism of the unix philosophy from man git tag what should you do when you tag a, a wrong commit and you want to re-tag it if you never pushed anything out, just retag it. Use dash f, replace the old tag you're done. But if you have pushed it out, or others could read your repository directly, then others will already have seen the tag. And in that case, you can do one of the following things. The same thing. Admit you screwed up. Use a different name. Others have already seen the one tag name. And if you keep the same name, you may be in the situation where two people both have version X, but they actually have different version Xs. Just call it x.1, be done with it. The insane thing. 
you really want to call a new version X2, even though others already have seen the old one, just use git tag dash F again, as if you hadn't already published the old one. Uh, from TCP dump uh, dash F, print foreign IPv4 addresses numerically rather than symbolically. This option is intended to get around the serious brain damage in Sun's NIS server. Usually it hangs forever translating non-local internet numbers. The developers of IP tables have a carefree attitude towards bugs. Bugs? What's this? Well, you might want to have a look at and then a bug tracker. Uh, and if you like this link, you could follow uh, Salmonier on, tw- on, 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 on Twitter, and they have a link to their Twitter. Uh, I'll say TCP dump has my um, favorite uh, command, which is five Ts, you know, how you sure you're meant to specify timestamps. Dash yeah. T, 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 T. <laughs> For time. Yeah. Can never have enough, though. You never those. have enough time, Benedict. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that a lot, yeah. Um, going to beastie bits here, we have the MIPS ThinkPad. Or almost, kind of. So uh, <laughs> here we have a picture of a ThinkPad keyboard uh, but with a hand on the side where the screen is. Popsa, pop quiz, what classic brand of laptop is this? I'll give another hint. So IBM, the logo is shown, but a finger blocks out the rest of that. Bright red trackpad and mouse button trim, classic keyboard font, IBM logo on the top. It's a ThinkPad, right? Well, obviously someone on IBM's design team wanted you to think so, but turn it on and it itself announced it. It's not a ThinkPad, so they have a... Oh, it's coming up as a WorkPad. Okay. Say hello to the RISC ThinkPad. That's not a ThinkPad, the IBM WorkPad Z50. Ooh, wow. I should say as further preamble that one of the collector hobbies is picking up non-x86 laptops. Obviously, the biggest absolute number of these are Apple devices because PowerBooks came in 86K and PowerPC flavors and Mac laptops are non-ARM, I mean Apple Silicon. However, there were a fair number of Spark laptops, primarily from Tadpole-RDI, but also some smaller companies and even a handful of PA Risk laptops. If you happen to have an Alpha book you're not using, <laughs> they're willing to deal seriously. Uh, you can read about them in a separate post, and they describe a lot more about this. And so, if you're interested in this hardware, then definitely check out this bit in our show notes. Then we have found Nix Gems for you. We went into the coal mine a little bit for that. Um, here, there's a couple of gems here. What is Nix Gems? That's a page on GitHub. Oh, no, GitLab, actually, sorry. Uh, it is a useful set of commands that are being used in Unix, Linux, macOS, FreeBSD, and some other tools like GPG, Find, SSH, etc. As it also has some brief information and tweaks about some tools and how-tos, all that is written as a good, uh, or as a good organ, in, well, one more time, all that are written in a good organized cheat sheet style. Oh, it's not too difficult. So yeah, find those and dig down into what you want to know. There's plenty of stuff from desktop environments to programming language to file systems, hacking, networking, security and privacy, and much more. All right. And all in cheat sheets so you can print them out and put them under your keyboard for the occasional. And they're nothing to do with Nix OS. It's all just Unix. It's it's a very confusing name. Yeah, yeah, that uh, could uh, be confusing. All right, next up we have um, the continuing series from PMake 96 on on running Palm OS in, in the modern age. And they have running Palm OS without running Palm OS. And they write, a traditional Palm OS emulator requires a ROM, a binary object that contains the original Palm OS compiled and linked for a 68K architecture. 
when you run an application PRC in those emulators, everything is emulated down to the hardware. So the ROM thinks it's talking to an actual device. Therefore, as an emulator developer, your job is to provide an implementation of the CPU memory display serial port and so on, taking into account the low-level differences between the myriad of devices that ran PAM OS back then. As long as your implementation of the physical layer is accurate, applications will generally run fine. Pumpkin OS allows you to run binary 68K applications, but do not require a copyrighted PAM OS ROM. The short story is this. Developers of PAM OS devised a clever way to implement system calls, also used in other 68K systems, I think. They used a feature of the 68K CPU called a trap. A trap is like a subroutine call, but instead of jumping to a different memory address, depending on the system call, it jumps to a fixed address, passing an argument identified, uh, identifying a system call. Pumpkin OS takes advantage of this effect, and whenever a trap is issued, it intercepts the execution flow, identifies the system call, extracts the parameters, and calls a native implementation inside Pumpkin OS, bypassing the ROM altogether. This is a very similar way to the way PACE, PAM application compatible environment, was implemented when PAM OS 5 was introduced. If the 68K application plays by the rules and the OS calls and only calls the OS through system traps, never accessing hardware directly, it will run fine on PAM OS. Now, if you want to know the long version of the story, you can look up the article in our show notes and go and read it there. But I read this on the way back from your BSD corner and it was really interesting. Hmm. Um, okay. It's very in-depth. You really want to go and read some 68K opcodes um, um, op and, and look through file formats. This is the article for you. Yeah, I used to have a uh, Palm Tungsten T somewhere around here. It's probably dead by now, but uh, those were the days. I, I think that's once they moved to ARM, right? Yeah, yeah. And all these hot syncing things and having, you know, duplicate items in your calendar, all the memories. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have, uh, we are closing this Beastie Bits with OpenBSD Mastery File Systems Draft Done by Michael W. Lucas. He writes, after far too long, I have finished a first draft of OpenBSD Mastery File Systems. Sponsorships are now closed. I'm asking tech reviewers to get any comments to me by October 15, 2022. That's four weeks. It might seem tight, but experience shows that people either get their comments to me immediately or wait until the last possible weekend. I'm not complaining. I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> Please return any comments either A, in plain text with enough context that I can find them when page numbers change, or B, as annotations directly on the PDF. Uh, his tech reviewers are now in their third decade of winning the prize for, quote, most likely to use many different PDF readers, quote, a file that works for one won't work for another. I work around this by distributing three PDFs of the manuscript, each identical in contact, but prepared differently. Everyone should be able to find one that works for them. If you're interested in doing a tech review, please drop me an email. The email address is provided saying who you are, why you would make you, what make you a good reviewer and what you, that you don't share. Yeah, the manuscript, yeah, before it comes out. Privacy is bad, but have, yeah, but having my name on an unreviewed and thus certainly incorrect document is horrifying. Sure, I'll ignore responses that can't follow these instructions because whenever I don't get difficult to decipher feedback, I have previously received postscript diffs and no, just no. I'll be turning my attention to the Prohibition Orcs copy edits next, then smack to the epic giant fiction project, another tech book title to be announced. And you can stalk Lucas on the social medias. Of course. His writing, not mine. 
All right, it's feedback and questions time. A lot of people have looked forward to this, and we haven't done those in a while, so we might as well jump right into it. All right. First one is a Brad, a certain Brad. Oh, I, I have an idea. Uh, with ZFS and databases. Uh, Brad writes, hello, Alan, Benedict, and JT, and Tom. I have recently stood up a small FreeBSD machine to act as a life support system for jails to run my infrastructure hosts. I'm using IOCage. Some of these jails use databases. I found a best practice stating that the optimal record size for Postgres is 8K, and for MySQL is 16K. So when I create a jail, I will do something like ZFS create O mount point, the mount point, RDB Postgres data 13. Uh, yep, dash O record size equals 8K, and then the device name or the name of the pool or the actual uh, dataset name. Or ZFS create dash O mount point, and the other <laughs> mount point for RDB MySQL dash O record size 16K. Yeah, and then the other disk. Okay. I have a script set up to migrate jails between this server and my desktop machine. In the event uh, of an emergency, basically a wrapper around IOKH export import. So if I migrate a jail from one host to another, does the dataset get migrated with the jail to the new host? Or do I need to migrate the jail over to the new host and create and mount a parallel dataset? I also ask because my datasets have different names based on the host name. So what I did once, um, when I had to export and import jails, what IOKH does is basically create a large, what it stops the jail and then exports it as a large zip file or gset or xset file. And that you can then transfer over to the other host and then basically import it there, which basically extracts the zip file and creates uh, the data set for you. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work for me because this, uh, the file was so big that uh, for one reason or the other, IOKH. Uh, couldn't finish that, so I had to do a ZFS send from one host to the other for the data set and then recreate the, the jail there. But since I had the data already, it was suddenly uh, finding the new jail on the other host and I could start it there. Um, so yeah, if look into the IOKH uh, documentation or the man page. It should tell you whether the data set gets migrated with the jail or not. I think it does this. Uh, other jail management systems do similar things. Um, not sure about uh, Bastille yet. I haven't played with it too much, but I think it does uh, basically uh, the same thing. Uh, either uh, its own export or it does set up a send and receive. I hope that helps. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have a, a, a follow-up on some on feedback uh, from Kevin, uh, and their question was about Emacs. Um, Kevin writes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, Tom, and JT. Thank you for such a great show. I look forward to the BSD content community each week. Thank you. I am comfortable with VI and EE on FreeBSD. I also like Emacs and MG. Over SSH, they work just fine. But on the local console or in an X session, the backspace query does not delete a character, but sends control H prefix instead. How do I fix this? Um, S T T Y erase equals uh, carrot question mark. And you can also probably set this in your. You can also um, Google what I googled: um, Unix carrot H when pressing backspace, and find the Stack Overflow answer. Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's also a way to put this in your shell uh, initialization file so that it, you don't have to do, do this every time, right? Yeah, but it's probably more related to your. Um, 
terminal not being set up correctly. And so if you look at the value of the term variable, you'll get an idea of if something is being sensible or not. I have this issue when um, remote machines send terminal types that the, the local machines send terminal types the remote machine doesn't understand. So I get like um, Tmux256 uh, color as a terminal type oh, yes. and the remote machine doesn't have any idea what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, I've been there. Uh, okay, hope that is uh, the thing you need and want. So that is the solution for that. And we have a third feedback or question from from Michal, not Michael, Michal. Virtual OSS is the topic and that goes, hello, I want to share with my history of working with FreeBSD as a main daily OS. Oh yeah, let's hear it. I'm using this system as a main OS for three years and only one thing was problematic. They're making a video conference with coworkers. Ah, yes, pandemic and stuff. Uh, the biggest issue was a sound card. Browsers with native native OSS weren't working properly. Sometimes only noises from mic were generated. Sometimes no sound card was detected. And eventually I found that virtual OSS is a solution for this. Only problem was that the mic was very quiet. I have an old sound card CMI8738 and I found that under Linux there was some magic in drivers which was turning boost on the microphone. Ah, I couldn't find any solution for this so I decided to wrote a question to author, the author of Virtual OSS, H. Solaski, Hans Peter, excellent. And I was surprised in a very positive way because I received an answer almost instantly. Ah, yes, <laughs> that's Hans Peter right there. Um, the solution was using the gain option and compressor. As I discovered with Virtual OSS, the quality of microphone was a lot better than under Linux, confirmed by the coworkers. Also with launching two virtual daemons, I can make simple uh, switching between native sound card and audio USB dongle possible. Oh, cool. Very nice. Since I then, since then I can use FreeBSD in 100% to work uh, without switching to Linux. Great. And he writes also, thanks for the great podcast. Very nice. That's a good story. I hear many good audio stories about BSD and virtual OSS. Yeah, it's, it's great news. Um, it's always good to get feedback about things that work. Um, and HPS is a very nice person. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't speak very well uh, during EuroBSD. Connie was a bit, you know, Hoars, uh, I think is the name. But yeah, he, he tried to gesture and we, we understood what he meant. So hopefully he's better by now. All righty. Um, I think that's a wrap. We have an episode recorded for you now, and I hope you liked it. Let us know on feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll be back with another episode next week, of course. Big surprise. Thanks for listening.